The Urbanist is brought to you in association with the Department of Culture and Tourism, Abu Dhabi. Sadiat Cultural District Abu Dhabi is a beacon of hope and inspiration. A catalyst to spark growth and collaboration with museums and experiences, where art and science and nature and technology coexist. The belief of Abu Dhabi that culture is the backbone of our society. Stay tuned for a special episode of the show, in which you can hear His Excellency Mohammed Khalifa Al-Mubarak explain exactly why and how Sadiat Cultural District Abu Dhabi is the perfect place to collaborate, create, and innovate. Sadiat Cultural District Abu Dhabi, proud partner of The Urbanist on Monocle Radio. Hello and welcome to The Urbanist, Monocle 24's programme all about the built environment and how to make our cities better places to live in. I'm your host, Andrew Tuck. Coming up. Now that it becomes electric, you free up the space and you can rethink what a motorcycle looks like, what a scooter looks like, what a car looks like. What's next for how we get around in cities and how can we improve what's already on offer? On today's show, we report from Commotion, Los Angeles, the annual event which brings together exciting voices in the transit space and their own ideas about our future direction of travel. Would you get in a driverless taxi? We do, so you don't have to. And we keep it in California as we take the bus in San Diego to investigate the ways in which the service could be improved to save commuters time and the city money. That's all ahead in the next 30 minutes, right here on The Urbanist, with me, Andrew Tuck. Later in today's show, we're heading to San Diego to discuss how to better utilise one of the good old-fashioned modes of transport. But before we do, let's take a look at the future of mobility. Los Angeles' annual Commotion Festival brings together the leading names in city governance, technology, public transport and startups to talk about what's next for mobility. With shifts in the political landscape in the country, it's an exciting time to think about how to innovate and improve what's on offer to help us get around our cities. We sent along our man in LA, Chris Lord, to steal some time with a few of the new players and some big names in transit and... He sent us this report. I'm in Little Tokyo, in downtown Los Angeles, for the sixth edition of Commotion, one of the world's leading conferences for mobility and the future of how we'll get around our cities. Commotion is suitably frenetic. There's a bustle of delegates from all over the world, touting last-mile solutions, intelligent motorways and all manner of electric vehicles. And with this being Thanksgiving week, we're going to look at where our planes, trains and automobiles might be heading. I'm here bright and early to meet Dr. Valerie Manning, the chief commercial officer of a company called Overair, which is developing an all-electric aircraft. At Overair, we want to change how people live their lives by providing a mode of transportation that allows them to do things they could never do before. At Overair, we're creating a best-in-class electric vertical lift aircraft to get people safely, easily and affordably where they need to go. The attributes necessary for success in... I meet Dr. Manning in front of a truck festooned with a huge propeller. 
No, it's not a flying truck, although perhaps it could. No, what we see here is one full-size propulsion system, and on our vehicle, we have four. So we are a tilt rotor electrical vertical takeoff and landing vehicle with four of what you see here. So we went out to the Mojave Desert uh, in California taking this truck, which is extremely heavy. You see in the back you have battery systems, etc., so that we can take the full-size propulsion system and really put it through its paces. We've done that and proved out our system. Over here, we can also see a model of what this ultimately will look like when four of them are attached to a plane chassis. Our technology in terms of the tilt rotor, the types of blades we're using, this is a spin-off and a commercial and electrified application of technology that's been worked on on the military side for about the last 20 years or so. Very efficient, optimum speed tilt rotor. Very efficient uh, in terms of the fact that we have extremely large propellers moving very slowly. So you can land on a heliport, you could land in any designated space. Medical transport, things like cargo transport, accessing remote areas, going from one remote area to another. We have quite a high payload, meaning we are able to accommodate one pilot, five passengers, and luggage. So compared to some others, we have a rather uh, large fuselage, which means we can really then transit families. We can do, you know, quite high volume transit, etc. I sense there's a sort of obvious market for a private jet world for this. Can it go that far? Can we be traveling across the continent, for example? Uh, no. The distance that we are targeting at the beginning is about 100 nautical miles. So you can say just over 100 miles at about 200 miles per hour. So it's fast, but it's still quite limited in terms of distance. Correct, because it's a, it is all electric. And so really right now, the distance is limited by how much energy you have. I mean, almost on cue, I can hear a jet plane going over, <laughs> going yeah. on over the top. That's the thing. So we have a helicopter going overhead right now. A helicopter, of course, has one big propeller. But part of where that noise comes from is not just the engine. It's the aerodynamic noise of that propeller and the way that it works. We have a vertical mode and a forward flight mode. Think about the difference between a ceiling fan in your house and a hairdryer. Those two things are moving about the same amount of air. But if you have big blades moving slowly, you don't hear it. And we have the biggest blades in the industry. Dr. Valerie Manning of Overair. She believes we'll see, if barely hear, these electric-powered planes in our skies by 2026. Since commotion started back in 2017, it's expanded to an event in Miami, another outpost in Vancouver, Canada, and it's incredible how central electrification has become in so much of the conversation around future mobility. I put that to John Rassant, Comotion's founder and CEO. I think what's interesting about electric mobility is that it completely opens up the form factor. So when you had only the internal combustion engine, you had to design a motorcycle or a car in a very specific way. Now that it becomes electric, you free up the space and you can rethink what a motorcycle looks like, what a scooter looks like, what a car looks like. In biology or paleontology, you had, I think, 200 million years ago, you had the Cambrian explosion where you had basically single cell life and then something happened and there were, you know, there were mammals, there were uh, lizards, there were dinosaurs. A sort of biological big bang, if you will. That's what we're having, what's happening now. Before we had three big automakers. Now you have Rivian, you have Lucid, you have Tesla, you have all sorts of things that are going on in the sky in terms of advanced air mobility. It's amazing. LA is certainly, it's the big, probably global hub 
of thinking about how advanced air mobility will work in the future in cities. So, you know, we'll, you know, in a few years, if we want to return to Santa Monica from downtown LA, we'll hop into an electric vertical takeoff and landing aircraft, and it'll take six minutes instead of an hour on the freeway. So that's the only way to get around the traffic here in LA? I mean, it's one way. But I mean, I think, you know, you also have to think larger. 40% of all American imports come through the city and the port. So you have incredible logjam in the ports. Well, in the future, what will happen is you'll have these big kind of heavy-duty cargo drones, autonomous cargo drones, that will pick up containers on the ship and take it to, like, an Amazon warehouse inland. These questions around and conversations around EVs and autonomous vehicles and so on, they're now so at the center of this government. I mean, we just look in the past year, some of the work the Biden government has done in terms of its bills that have got through the House, signed into law, providing huge subsidies for people to buy electric cars, the electrification of these congested freeways that we were just talking about. Both the Infrastructure Bill and the Inflation Reduction Act are absolutely historic and are game-changing in terms of the funds and the resources that will be focused on renewable energy, on advanced mobility, etc. It's amazing. And I think Pete Buttigieg is just an absolutely outstanding Secretary of uh, Transportation. And he says it right. He says it's, you know, FDR had the New Deal. This is going to be the big deal. And it really is a big deal because I think it will transform every nook and cranny of this country. My God, we need our infrastructure to be upgraded. And not only upgraded so that, you know, a bridge doesn't collapse, but that it becomes intelligent and you have sensors. You know, we're preparing really for the full benefits of the mobility revolution. John Rassant. So, that's planes. But before we get onto the rails, commotion has become a crossroads of mobility movers and shakers. And it's amazing who you bump into in the VIP area. First up, Louisa Bonello and Stuart Wilkinson of Vita Power. They make electric-powered yachts and boats and the aquatic charging stations that keep them chugging along. We're installing the first superchargers in Lake Tahoe and they've gone in Lake Michigan. We have others following in Florida and in Silicon Valley and the Bay Area. This summer, last summer, there's been a real tipping point. There's about 25 electric boat companies coming, which is why Aqua exists. Sweden has led the way in Europe a lot and Norway. And also Monaco is doing a lot on that front. We're at you know single percentage points in terms of penetration, but we're seeing it go up to quite high levels of penetration over the next five years. Arul Chetillian, a Vice President of Corporate Affairs and Development for CDPQ Infra. Now, Arut, you used to be the Deputy Mayor of Montreal, and just to explain what that business you're now doing is, it's all about rethinking the infrastructure in the centre of the city, isn't it? Tell me a little bit about that. We are an institution that is uh, given the mandate of managing the depositors' funds, the retirees of Quebec. And we've put together a team since 2016 to develop infrastructure projects from scratch. And we're delivering one as we speak. And the first segment will open in April. 67 kilometers and 26 stations of light rail that will service millions of people starting in 2024. I am JB Jean-Baptiste Jebari. I'm the chairman of Hopium. We're using uh, hydrogen, so uh, 
there's an electric motor, but one has a battery, and that's a battery electric vehicle, and the other one has a fuel cell system using hydrogen, and we have now two concept cars. The last one was displayed a month ago in uh, the Paris Auto Show. You've got an interesting story because just until May, I think, this year, you were the Secretary of State for Transport there in the French government. I was in charge of developing the charging stations network for battery electric vehicles. And now hydrogen is coming. Uh, it's coming a bit later. It's coming, in, most people are saying, for heavy mobility, but uh, we can see the environment is changing quite a lot, especially in Europe. More and more car manufacturers are interested to have hydrogen for passenger vehicles. So it does recharge a lot faster than uh, electric vehicle. For example, for the machina of opium, it only takes three or four minutes to recharge at full autonomy, and full autonomy is 1,000 kilometers, quite significant. That's one of the key advantages of hydrogen is a long range. And uh, last week, Volkswagen, the German manufacturer, they said they were working on a 2,000 kilometers range vehicle, uh, 1,200 miles, so that, that's really, really massive. So so definitely long distance and, uh, and fleet, hydrogen is a key player, will be a key player in mobility. Jean-Baptiste Jabari, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. Now on to trains. Los Angeles, Commotion's host city, is a place where the car is king. But ahead of the city hosting the Olympics in 2028, LA Metro is opening line after new line of light rail. But can they entice people to use them? Mark Valianasos is executive officer of LA Metro. 100 years ago, Los Angeles had the largest streetcar network in the world. And then it was taken out, replaced with buses, and then essentially abandoned. But because Los Angeles 100 years ago innovated for the entire world how to integrate cars into a city, I feel like that's a kind of inspiration about how we help innovate, how you turn around a car-based metropolis into a more multimodal, balanced type of transportation system. So that's what gets me up in the morning, feeling... There's a chance to do good here. Driving around LA, you see these huge trucks. People are very wedded to their rams and their, their comforts of getting around the city in a car. How do you begin to unpick that deep connection between people and their association with you get in your car in Los Angeles and you drive? So one thing is if we can improve the customer experience on transit or on bikes, working on the basics, you know, making transit fast, frequent, reliable, safe, easy to use and understand. We're studying a pilot of congestion pricing that we would be proposing a site to do that. If our board approves that, we would aim to start it before the Olympics. And that kind of push and pull, you know, better... It be a big push, that though, Mark. Are you, are you prepared for it? Because there may well be a backlash. I just think of some of the responses to some of those cycle lanes that have been built here in recent years. Congestion charging, really, in Los Angeles? It's interesting because it can actually help people get where they need to go. And in the, in the major cities that have tried it, it's always pulled little bit sketchy when they start it and it gets more popular because people see the benefits. It can help with equity as well because we can reinvest the funds into transportation used by lower income households. And again, it's like the spirit of optimism, the spirit of we need to do something major for the Olympics to make it a success. Again, I'm, I'm optimistic. We hopefully can at least try it. In the last few years, some of the discourse around Los Angeles is fears of safety and concern about crime and so on. Address that if you could, because I think when you talk to people here in Los Angeles, some of their concerns is certainly taking the light rail that has been built here that is clean, effective, does take you to where you want to go, but they worry about safety. Is that a fair concern? And how is LA Metro getting a handle on that? We just introduced a customer experience ambassador program. Unarmed, but you know, people have identified with colored vests who can help you out, answer questions about routes, but also just be there 
in stations or in the train or the bus if you have concerns to share. And we also, of course, then there's another layer of, of law enforcement if, if there's any dangerous situations. There's a positive feedback loop in cities in general and on transit of having more people in a space. Because with people around, you feel safer. Eyes on the streets, eyes on the train. Mark Valianassos of LA Metro, thanks so much for talking to us. Thanks a lot. There's a long way yet to go to unpick the automobile's dominance. But perhaps the future is not about carless streets, but fewer drivers. Waymo has been around since 2009 and began as a research project inside Google. Now the company's fully autonomous taxis are operating in Phoenix, Arizona. It's all about making the streets safer, says Ellie Casson, head of city policy and government affairs at Waymo. The Waymo vehicle can see in all directions simultaneously, up to three football fields away. Let's get in. Let's 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 try it. Let's get inside here. So you're going to scoot over. Okay, so it is a Jaguar inside here. It so is. despite all its autonomy, if I hailed one of these, what would the experience be? Talk me through it. If you are in the Phoenix area today, you could use the Waymo One app. A fully empty vehicle shows up picks you up and takes you to your destination. So you can be reading, you can be sleeping, you are not responsible for the driving. In fact, you are not able to drive a Waymo. And we believe that's the safest, best way for autonomy to operate on the road. The role of the passenger, be very clear, you are 100% of the time able to just relax when you are in a Waymo. And is there no one in the car? We see so many of these innovations happening, ideas coming forward, but quite often there's still someone in the car hanging on. What's the situation now? Initially, when Waymo first comes to a new city and begins the process of working towards what we call rider only, which is our our end state where the, the vehicle is offering a ride hail service without anyone in it. We do go through a period of learning about the environment, first with autonomous vehicle specialists behind the wheel. They are initially creating hyper-detailed maps by driving manually around a city, learning about the built environment. And over time, we transition to full rider-only mode. You're obviously talking at the moment to local governments all around this country, I imagine. Do you have lots of them knocking on your door saying, we want Waymo in our town? We do. We are in a fortunate position of uh, being a technology that a lot of cities are really excited to see come to their community. There are also cities that are a little bit more, they have questions and they have concerns about how our service and how our technology will integrate into the complex environment that they already have on their roadways. We get to know their transportation staff, their elected officials, their community leaders to understand what their general transportation priorities are and then what their hopes and fears about autonomous vehicles relative to their city are. I have been at Waymo for five years and so I've seen the technology really progress. And today, if you get into a Waymo in Phoenix, initially you are going to be shocked, maybe a little nervous, but excited to see the vehicle operating by itself, the steering wheel turning by itself. And then we've gotten to a point where our service, the technology is so strong, it's such a smooth ride that within minutes you forget that you are in an autonomous vehicle and that the experience you are having is somewhat unique. For every individual who gets in one of these cars, that gives the service just that little bit more insight, a little bit more understanding. It's a constant process of data collection. We are always learning, always iterating, always getting better. Ellie Casson, Head of City Policy and Government Affairs at Waymo. Thank you so much. Thank you.
For Monocle in Los Angeles, I'm Chris Lord. With all the talk of transit's brave new world, it's important not to ignore what we've already got. While some cities can afford to experiment, many others only look to bolster what they've got, not to mention the fact that tweaking an existing system is a quicker and easier way to affect real change for commuters. Circulate San Diego is a non-profit think tank in Southern California which does advocacy and research work around public transit, safe streets and sustainable growth. Circulate has recently released a report recommending improvements to bus services which include dedicated bus-only lanes, transit signal priority, increased frequencies, all-door boarding and much more. Well, I'm joined now by Circulate San Diego's executive director, Colin Parent, to discuss the report and how it might help transit users in the city. Colin, thank you for joining me. Can you start by telling us a little bit about this recent report? What is it attempting to change about the San Diego transitscape? So we just released a report called Fast Bus, and it does what it says on the tin. It's about how our bus system locally in San Diego can and should be faster so that people who ride it are able to get where they're going faster and so that the system becomes more attractive for more people to choose. And it has a lot of specific recommendations to San Diego and to our region, but a lot of those recommendations are the things that any good transit agency in any city ought to do to make sure that the bus system was faster. Now, before we dive into that, one of the interesting things watching U.S. cities in recent months is many of them are struggling with the fact that there's been, in the U.S. particularly, a very marked change in how people work and their patterns of travel, which means that actually there are fewer people riding buses and public transit. Is that the case in San Diego? There's definitely some of that in San Diego. It's happening less in our system, I think, than some of the other uh, places in North America, in part because in San Diego, the people who currently ride transit are the folks who are just like overwhelmingly don't own cars, are substantially less affluent than other people, and are, tend to have jobs that you can't work from home. And so the recovery on our system because of those things has been generally better than some other places where there may be more affluent riders who could choose to work from home. I saw a number, I think, in your report saying the ambition is to get 15% of people riding public transit each day for their commutes. That seems, in a European context, very low. So there's still a strong dependence then on, for middle-class people, for example, getting around by car. Yeah, absolutely. So San Diego is what we call a sunbelt city in the United States, which is a city that kind of really grew up around the car, grew up after the car. So that means things are fairly sprawled out. We have a city center, but it's not the bulk of where where people live and work. And so the result is that the transportation network is designed around people owning cars. And so our transit current ridership in the region is like less than 5%. And getting it up to, it's actually 25% in the city of San Diego's climate action plan, 25% of people who live near transit plan to use it is just a really big move and shift that would have to occur. So what would change the game a little bit? Is it putting in corridors where you have faster buses that stop at fewer places but get to key destinations? Yeah, that's a big part of it. So we we actually identified a dozen or so solutions that should be implemented. Some are appropriate for some routes and, and some maybe for others. But I think one of the key ones is something called bus stop balancing, which is 
Right now, a lot of bus lines stop every other block in San Diego. This is true of actually a lot of American cities. And if they were to stop less frequently, then they could overall travel faster. And this is something that is really important to recognize that this isn't just like my idea. This isn't just Circulate's idea. This is actually something that riders themselves say that they want is they would prefer to have a faster overall trip, even if it meant that they had to walk a little bit longer to get to their bus stops. And then the frequency question, because I presume that means greater investment, buying more buses. How does that sit with San Diego? That's right. And so frequency, with the bus coming more frequently, the bus actually doesn't travel faster. But what it does is it allows someone to wait less amount of time to get to their bus. And so their overall trip takes less time. But that does it. That's not free. You got to buy more buses. You got to pay for more bus drivers. There's costs associated with that. And one of the things that has been a challenge in San Diego, amongst other places, is getting decision makers to decide that that's the kind of investment that they want to make. A lot of the focus has instead been on planning for and sometimes building, you know, very large, expensive rail projects, which, you know, certainly have their place and and are really valuable. But part of the reason we put out this report is we want to make sure that the decision makers are also examining and investing in these sort of service-oriented expenses that can make some changes more immediately and, and benefit more people sooner. Before I came on air, I was reading about San Diego, and you, you do have a, a pretty good light rail network as well, and the train seems to be an important part of San Diego's history as well. What is it, do you think, about rail, which, as you say, is, is, is certainly more expensive to put in place than a rapid bus transit network? What do you think it is about rail that has won out in the past? Yeah, I think there's a variety of reasons. Some of them are perfectly appropriate. I mean, the, I think for a lot of folks, myself included, rail is a more pleasant experience. I can get carsick on a bus, but I don't have that problem while I'm on on a trolley or a train. And so there, there's some real quality differences. But it's also true that the trolley, trolley is the name for our light rail. It's uh, Our region was the first uh, modern American city to institute light rail. And it, you know, so it has that quality benefit, but it's also orders of magnitude more expensive to build. And so we're not going to be able, even of our wildest dreams and the most ambitious of transportation financing plans, we're not going to be able to build a trolley to every place that we want to serve with high quality transit. And so if we want to make the improvements to transit for a diverse geography and population, we're going to have to make some complementary investments in our bus system as well. And tell me, you hinted at the beginning of this that maybe some of the communities who are not so well served by public transport at the moment are those communities that may be a little bit poorer, a little bit maybe outside the system in some cases, and may not feel that City Hall always listens to them. Is that another reason that perhaps in the past they just haven't had the lobbying power to get the transit they need? Yeah, that's definitely part of it. To some extent, it's actually an inversion of that. It's that the highest quality existing bus routes and transit routes tend to be in more lower income areas, although that's kind of shifting as poverty becomes more suburbanized in our community, just as elsewhere in in North America. But a lot of that high quality services is in the form of a bus, not a trolley. And so the attention and the interest of making transit investments for new rail lines tends not to be in those communities. Whereas if we made a commitment to enhancing our bus service, that would provide some pretty direct benefits to the lower income communities who are currently have some access to the bus, but the, the bus is just not as high quality as it could be. And finally, tell me, this plan has been put out there. What's the response? And do you think that the city is going to act on it? Response has been pretty positive. We actually are in this situation in San Diego where we've got these big grand ideas about reshaping our transportation land use policies toward climate 
and climate efficiency and reducing the amount of driving that people have to do. And that's great. But we also are running up against you know, really strong fiscal constraints. Our regional transportation agency is not being able to generate the kind of revenues that they had initially projected. And so that's giving this opportunity for people to say, okay, well, if we, we want to make these changes, but we have some actual real limits to what we can spend money on, then making the bus faster is a convenient, achievable, efficient way to invest the limited resources that we do have to achieve these goals. And so it's not a slam dunk. We've still got to get out there and, and let people know and talk to them about it. But I think the reception so far has been really generally positive, And we're really hopeful that people are going to be able to see the wisdom of making these kinds of investments. My thanks there to Colin Parent from Circulate San Diego. And you can find out more about the report at circulatesd.com. Well, that's all for this week's episode of The Urbanist. Today's show was produced by Carlos Rebello and David Stevens, and David also edited the show. And make sure you pick up your copy of Monocle magazine and also the new Forecast magazine, which has lots of good inspirational stories about cities and urbanism to keep you engaged when you are not listening to The Urbanist. And to play you out this week, here's Marlena Shaw with California Soul. Thank you for listening, city lovers. Like a sound you